chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thanks for having me in your church. Thanks for having our mauling team. It feels like a real mauling day, doesn't it? <laughs> Kate Fletcher and, of course, Joel. It's one of the things I dig about... Um, being at Mauling, but being at Mauling as long as I have been at, at Mauling. When I started there, I was kind of the young, cool guy. Now I'm the old guy that's just been there forever. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, really, I really like the way like, students come to Mauling as obviously strangers. And then they become your students and, uh, and then you get to know them and you have, a, you know, some of them you have some influence on. And then later you find that for some of them you become their friends and colleagues and partners, and I actually feel that way about Joel, really. I've, I've really uh, valued... I mean, I met Joel when he was a distance student down in Canberra, and then he came, he and Bronwyn moved on campus, and uh, uh, it's just a nice thing to see people come as, uh, as people who might otherwise, you just might pass like chips in the night, and at the end of it, you... you not the end of it, it hasn't ended yet, Joel, I don't think, but uh, <laughs> at the, this particular point in time, you think, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not going to one of my students' churches, I'm going to one of my friend's churches, one of my colleagues in ministry churches. That's, uh, I don't know. Am I sounding old? <laughs> I am, yeah. But I'm at Erina, so I'm just trying to, <laughs> just trying to fit in, you know. Like. Speaking of old, like Paul Dennis, who led our worship and is the leader of the Morland College team here to Erina, uh, I went through college with his dad. So... <laughs> Nothing makes you feel older than Bob Dennis's little boy leading you in the partnership mission team and has done a, done a, has done a fantastic job. I really appreciate it, man. Good job. Okay, now I don't know uh, if you had a chance to grab your Bibles and open them as Rachel was reading that, that passage to you, but it'd be good if you did. Uh, uh, let me remind you what the, the, uh, the text is. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, and it's a pretty well-known couple of verses, uh, certainly the first a uh, couple of the verses that were read to you uh, used to be a, a song that we used to sing, so uh, most people know them, and then the subsequent verses make uh, even more sense of what's, uh, what's in those earlier ones. So uh, if you grab 1 Peter, turn to chapter 2, uh, I'll reread it a little bit later on, it's already been read to you, but we're looking at verses 9 uh, to 12. Let me say a prayer, and uh, then we'll see... Uh, what this word might say to us today at uh, at Erin Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father God, you know that my prayer under these circumstances is always the same. I ask that you would ensure the words that I speak, the thoughts that come to mind, would be acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord and our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. 
Now, I mentioned yesterday to those people who are at our, uh, at our workshop or mobile college uh, morning that uh, I teach in our missions department. Actually, I direct the missions department at, uh, at Morling. And the area of study that people would say that I uh, have invested my research in is called missiology. Now, it's not a very common name. Uh, I actually remember telling a guy, uh, not a Christian, a church-going guy at a social event that I, was, uh, that I uh, studied missiology, and he thought that meant that I was a bartender. I don't know how he got that. It's like, missiology, oh, so you mix drinks? And like, like, no, not missiology. Yeah, no, it's not a very common term. Lots of Christians don't even know what it means, but basically it's the study of the church's engagement in its world. And more often than not, I mentioned this yesterday, the people who used to study missiology were people who are going to be cross-cultural or overseas missionaries. Uh, and they'd study uh, stuff like how to read culture, cultural anthropology, cross-cultural communications, uh, all those kinds of uh, you know, evangelism, uh, language studies and those sorts of things. But increasingly, over the last you know, 15 or so years, we're now seeing lots of people who are going to be serving God here in the West uh, studying missiology as we're finding our culture is becoming increasingly post-Christian. So the people who attend these days to study missiology are people who are thinking, well, I would like to present Christ in a context that is pre-Christian, where the gospel hasn't yet taken root and had impact on culture and people's lives. And now you're finding people saying, actually, I, for the same reasons, would like to study it, but not for a pre-Christian or un-Christian culture, but to engage with a post-Christian culture. Here in the West, no longer can we just put a sign up the front of our church or let a box drop and have people expected that they would turn up. We're now finding ourselves in a missionary challenge in the West. Does that make sense? And those people who are exploring that side of missiology, how to engage the West with the gospel, they ask slightly different questions than those who are trying to engage in pre-Christian mission primarily uh, going overseas. The questions these people ask here in a post-Christian context are not how do we introduce the gospel to people who've never heard it before. Obviously, the question for them is how do we re-engage a culture that thinks that it's kind of had Jesus, it's kind of done the Christian thing and is kind of over it, how do we re-engage them in interest in something that they think they're kind of over? Does that make sense? Now, I'm not suggesting one or other is more difficult or easier than the other. They're just quite different. But those people are trying to figure out how to do mission in a post-Christian context, in Europe and Britain, Australia, New Zealand, United States and places like that. The question they often ask, the things that they often look for, is have there been any examples at any point in history where a culture which has been Christianized and then slid into post-Christian sensibilities being re-Christianized. Does that make sense? Like you can think of lots of examples of cultures that have been pre-Christian or un-Christian and have become predominantly Christianized, but are there any examples where a culture has been Christianized, slipped into post-Christendom, and then been re-Christianized again? And unfortunately, there are very, very few examples that we can point to. Uh, and in fact, probably one, to be honest. And it's a long time ago. 
the one most significant experience uh, in history that where we've seen culture slide into post-Christendom and then been re-engaged with Christianity uh, happened around the 700-800 AD period. You might remember, I'm sure you know, that the the Christian movement took root in the ancient Near East. It spread into Asia Minor, or Turkey, as we call it today, into northern Africa. It, it really consolidated in those parts of, of, uh, of the East and in North Africa before eventually flooding into Western Europe. And, and, and you will probably know uh, Constantine, the emperor, claimed to convert and uh, declared Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, Europe had been Christianized. Sounded good, didn't it? But it only lasted for about 10 years before uh, Constantine skedaddled out of Europe and headed over to Asia Minor uh, and Western Europe collapsed into post-Christendom. You you heard the stories, haven't you? The Goths and the Visigoths and the the Vandals and all those guys swept down from the north and the Salazans up from the south. and (coughs) So-called Christian Europe disintegrated into its darkest days of paganism and fear and violence. During this period, like the 400s, 500s, 600s, Europe which had heard the gospel, Europe which had been Christianized, uh, literally disintegrated into war and violence and fear and superstition. You know all those kind of stories that you've got from Europe about goblins and ghouls and werewolves and witches and dark things in the forest and scare, all that stuff, all those stories emerged at this time. Uh, villages were living constantly in fear of being attacked by another tribe. Uh, what had once been Uh, The the peaceful state of the Roman Empire Christianized, disintegrated into paganism, fear, violence and darkness. And yet by 800 AD, Western Europe had been thoroughly and totally reconverted to Christianity. How did this happen? How did the conversion of Europe in 300, roundabout, 300, 350 roundabout, descending into absolute paganism for hundreds of years, get re-Christianized by 800 AD. Who did it? How did this happen? Who was responsible for this? Well, what you'll discover if you understand a little bit about church history is it was the least likely people in the whole world to re-Christianize a European culture. They did not come from Rome, the centre of learning, or Alexandria, the centre of culture, or even from Jerusalem, which had been the city of God. Guess where they came from? What had been perceived to be the most God-forsaken, useless, absolutely overlooked, completely the boondocks of Europe. Nothing good could come from there, really, surely. It was called Scotland. Well, actually, it wasn't called Scotland. It is today called Scotland. In the north of the British Isles, Celtic evangelists swept down out of the British Isles and invaded Europe throughout the 600s, 700s, until they brought about phenomenally the complete conversion of the post-Christian European experience. How? Who were these people? Crazy blue-faced people bearing their buttocks at the Romans, you know, 
drinking and singing and laughing and carrying. I mean, these people, what? How did they do that? Are you kidding me? Well, what had been happening in this period as Europe disintegrated into paganism, the patrician monasteries from Ireland in particular, under the model of St. Patrick, had moved across into what today we call Northern England and Scotland and had been converting people slowly but surely, marvelously calling them into a monastic life. You may know something of the Celtic monastic movement. They would build their monasteries on river mouths, by and large, or islands very close to the coast. You might be familiar with the Iona community or the Lindisfarne community, uh, uh, both communities of which are still uh, in existence today. And effectively, it seems as though the source of their extraordinary success was kind of this rhythm that they developed in the lives of their converts. When you converted within Celtic Christianity, say, in Scotland, you would be brought into the monastic experience and you are expected to orient your life around two circular places. One was called the cell. We often think of monastic cells or the, the monk's cell as being like a stone room in a big stone monastery, right? That, that come to mind? But not for the Celtic uh, uh, missionaries or, or monks. For the Celtic monks, a cell was a circular building in which two or four monks would live with a pointed thatched roof house. Um, a little bit like a, we might call a yurt, something like that. You're familiar with the kind of idea? A whitewashed um, a mud circular building with the, the kind of pointed thatched roof uh, house, uh, 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 roof. Uh, the monk was expected to spend huge amounts of their time in their cell, learning to embrace the disciplines of holiness and godliness. They were to, to pray something like 12 times a day, they were expected to enter into experience of regular fasting, study of the scriptures, service of others. They were expected to engage uh, in farm work on the, on the small community farms that the monasteries held. They were effectively called, having now converted to Christ, to discipline their spirits into the selfless, God-oriented life of the monk. Now, we'd be familiar with this kind of thing what we know about monastic life, wouldn't we? Discipline, self-denial, prayer, rhythms of, uh, of uh, a devotion to Christ. It was a way of building, if you like, spiritual muscle in the lives of these Celts. Now remember, Celts like to drink and tell stories and fight and dance. I mean, they're crazy people. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like it was crushing their spirit. Rather, it was taking this joy and dynamism for life and orienting it, not toward just licentiousness and pleasure, but toward devotion to God. The, 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 the work that the kind of great Celtic monasteries did, the monasteries of St. Brendan and St. Columbanus, Columbus and those guys, well, it was effectively to take these dynamic people and focus all their energies and dynamism toward the worship of God. So that's the cell. You with me? The second circular place they had to orient their lives around was called the coracle. Now, it's not a very commonly used term these days, but coracle was a circular boat 
It's still used these days in southern India and southeast Asia. You may have seen pictures of it. It's, uh, it looks like a big breakfast bowl, basically. It's a thatched boat, very light to carry, and it's circular. Uh, the reason why they, they build them this way is because it was really easy with a, a leather strap for a fisherman to put it on his back and to walk down to the river or down to the coast to go fishing. Generally a one or two man boat. Uh, I've actually tried to paddle one of these in Vietnam. Now, we all know how to paddle kayaks and canoes, don't we? Which look like this. And when you paddle them, they go in a straight line in the direction you paddle, right? So I was on a beach in Vietnam with some students, as it so happened, and there were some fishermen there, the coracles, and I was saying, could I, like, paddle? Well, the Vietnamese thought that this was hilarious because they knew exactly what was going to happen. And uh, sure enough, so they put me in the coracle, uh, pushed me out uh, into the water, and try as hard as I could. No matter how you paddle these jolly things, you just spin round and round in circles. And the Vietnamese, oh my gosh, that was the best entertainment they'd had in ages. There's <coughs> some technique to like paddling these things in order to get them to go where you want to go. But here's the thing about the Celts. After a monk had demonstrated a capacity to harness their passions and their energies toward worship of God in the cell, the abbot father would tap them on the shoulder and would say, it's now time for you to embrace the discipline of the coracle. And a monk, usually in groups of two or four again, was then taken from their cell down to the river. I told you most of them built their monasteries on river mouths or islands. And there they would put a monk or two into a coracle with no paddle. And they would say a prayer that kind of went like this. Triune God of the winds and the waves and the tides, send these men to those people to whom they should preach the gospel. And then they would push them out into the river. As I said, there was no paddles, no compasses, no maps. They simply floated down the river and out into the North Sea. And if you just left your own devices, apparently under those circumstances, you bump into Norway or Denmark or Germany or France. The great stories of guys like St. Brendan, who they claimed actually sailed all the way to America, but, you know, those Celts, they make stuff up. <laughs> what wasn't made up was this. Men who had just committed themselves to the extraordinary discipline of the cell were put into coracles and they landed on the shores of the Frisians, of the Danes, the Gauls, and there, wild, crazy, dynamic men whose passions had been harnessed around worship of God believed wherever they landed, these were the people to whom God had sent them. No one knows exactly how many of them there were, but the assumption is thousands of Celtic monks from Ireland and Scotland and northern England literally invaded Europe and re-Christianized Western Europe. Not through scholarly uh, 
biblical studies as had been the, the tradition prior to that, but by wild, dynamic, magnificent, godly missional service. The cell, the harnessing of passions and pleasures, and the coracle, the place of adventure and risk, combine in a binocular sense into a marvellous image of what the people of God need to be and to do in order to engage a post-Christian culture. Do you follow? Well, actually, when you start to think about life in the cell and the coracle, and then you read your New Testament, you'll discover actually the rhythm of the cell and the coracle is all the way through the New Testament. Have a look at the passage that was read to you before uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me reread it for you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me just stop there for a second because, as you know, I teach at Morling College. And if Peter had have turned this in as an essay to one of our subjects there, we would have failed him for plagiarism right off the bat. Because every single phrase in that passage is basically copied straight out of the Old Testament. It is holy, godly plagiarism, basically. <laughs> have a look at it. If you have a look at these passages here, uh, where he says, uh, you're a chosen race, God's own people, to declare my praises, that's Isaiah 43, 20 to 21. Straight out of there. That's a, a big red line through that one. A royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, that's Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And then the, the most obvious one is like, uh, once you are not a, a people, and now you are God's people, once you've not received mercy, now you have received mercy, what did that make you think of? Hosea. Remember how Hosea married a prostitute and she had a child to him and a child to someone else, and uh, he kept naming the children these weird names? Are you familiar with the story? It's kind of like, uh, you know, he would, he would name the children kind of the way he was saying God looks at Israel. So his first child would be called not my people. That's tough at kindy, you know. It's like <laughs> Jenny, Dakota, Sarah, not my people. You know, it's like uh, no mercy. How, imagine getting that for a name. Like I'm no mercy, hi. He would give these names to his children to indicate how God was feeling about Israel. And then, if you know the story, of course, he buys his own wife back out of cultic prostitution to restore his family. And at the end of the story, what does Hosea do? He renames all of his kids. So, no mercy, I'm going to call you mercy. Not my people, I'm going to call you the people of God. When Peter takes exactly that whole story and relates it here. It's plagiarism, through and through. Well, what's, what's Peter doing? I think he's doing something quite marvellous when I think about it. Who is he writing this letter to? He's writing it to Christians in Asia Minor, Christians who are going to experience rather unspeakable persecution. And here, in, this, in the midst of this, what is he doing? Writing to ordinary, unremembered, unfamous, unknown Christians in churches now that have been completely lost and forgotten, some of which are still recalled. But this letter was written to ordinary Christians, like maybe the, the folks from Aaron Baptist Church. 
It's written to them and it's saying this to them. You may feel like you're a bit of a nobody. You may think you're a bit overlooked and this isn't the center of the universe and we're not the church of Rome or the church of Jerusalem. It's just Asia Minor. We're just little agrarian communities. We're merchants and farmers and we're nobodies. And soon this great steamroller of persecution is going to roll right over the top of us. Like, who will remember us? What difference has it made? And what Peter is saying to them is this. Whoa, no! You're not just ordinary, unremembered nobody from Asia Minor, here's who you are. You are a chosen nation. You are a holy people. You are those who've been called by him to declare his praises. You were once not a people. Now you're the people of God. You were once no mercy. Now you've experienced mercy. What is he doing? He's saying, I am going to give you all the names that God gave to Israel because you, by your faith in Christ, have entered into this marvellous fellowship of the people of God throughout the ages. It's pretty cool, don't you think? Here, don't call yourself nobodies from Asia Minor. Call yourself this, royal priesthood. You're not Aaron a Baptist church, you're a holy nation. And when you keep thinking about it, you think, of course Peter would do that. Because Peter knows the enormous power of a name change, doesn't he? You know, when Jesus meets Peter, it's like, what's your name? No, that, mean, that, that mean just means read. That's nothing. I'm going to call you Rock. Now, we know he didn't turn into a rock just like that, did he? He was kind of vacillating for quite a while. But there's something marvelous, I think, in Peter's story about being renamed by Jesus. And then we watch as he grows up into his name. I think Peter's doing the same thing for the churches of Asia Minor. Here, grow up into this name, holy nation. Grow up into this name, royal priesthood. Come on, grow up into this name, the people of God. He renames them all the names that God had given to Israel. And then having commissioned them with a new name, having declared their new and peculiar identity in Christ, he then commissions them into the rhythm of the cell and the coracle. Have a look at what happens in the rest of the passage. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. What does that sound like to you? Get into the cell. You know all those passions and pleasures that wage war in the soul? Here's what I want you to do. I want you uh, to abstain from them. I want you to develop a capacity to harness these passions and pleasures, to repent of those that are ungodly, to use those for the glory of God where you can. I want you in the cell. I want you praying 12 times a day. I want you to learn what it is to fast and to pray and to repent. I want you to develop the rhythm of the cell to abstain from the passions and pleasures that wage war in your soul. But it's not finished there. He then says, and conduct yourselves honorably, where? Among the Gentiles. So that they may malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. What's he saying? I don't want you to live in the cell. I want you to learn the rhythm of the cell, but I want you in the coracle out there among the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying to you. I want you to develop this binocular rhythm 
of godliness, holiness, righteousness, discipline, selflessness, sacrifice, spiritual discipline. I want you to build spiritual muscle, but don't want you to live in the cell. I want you in the coracle, and I want you to be prepared to be pushed out into goodness knows where and among goodness knows whom for the glory of my name. Does this make sense? Now, I I suspect in a room like this, there are some of you who really dig the cell. That just stands to reason. And this many people, there's bound to be some of you who've got no problem with me calling you to the cell. Like you dig Bible study, you love hanging out with other believers, you're really like you're a prayer warrior, you love serving people, you're just like totally into the cell. Yay, that's good. But you need to learn the rhythm of the coracle. We need to push you out of here so that all that you've learned through the rhythm of the cell can be practiced right under the noses of those who've not yet been set free. But my guess also is there's plenty of you love the coracle. Oh man, you just go anywhere, do anything. You're up for risk and adventure, relationship. Let's do it. (coughs) Here's your challenge. You need to learn the discipline of harnessing your passions and pleasures. You need to learn the discipline of what it's like to orient all those good and godly impulses in you, not to be dissipated, but to be focused directly on the glory of God. Some of you love the cell. You need to learn the life of the coracle. Some of you love the coracle. I need to get you into the cell. Does this make sense? And when you look at the Bible through the rhythm of the cell and the coracle, oh my gosh, you just find it everywhere. Have a look at this. Uh, you don't have to find these in your Bible. I'll just read a few of them to you. Uh, uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Christ gave himself for us all to redeem us from all iniquity, to purify himself, a people of his own, the cell, who are zealous for good deeds among the Gentiles, the coracle. Or you probably know this verse, James chapter 1, verse 27. This is quite a well-known verse. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What? Visit orphans and widows in their affliction, the coracle, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, the cell. In fact, as soon as you get the rhythm of the cell and the coracle in your mind, you'll find it all the way through Scripture. My concern is this. Particularly in our Baptist tradition, we've been pretty good at the, at the cell. We've been pretty good at like Bible teaching and Bible studies and spiritual disciplines and the like. But we've become risk-averse, frightened of life in the coracle, afraid of what might be lost. I'm wanting to suggest to you that a people movement that changes culture isn't one that merely comes from the cell. You can prove that time and again throughout history. But by the same token, I'm not calling you to totally undisciplined, unregulated, random acts of coracleness. 
Life in the coracle only works if you've already had the experience of the cell. Does this make sense? Uh, I've got a few students in the room, so I have to be careful about what I say. But you do meet a number of students who come through mauling who just want to get straight into the coracle. It's like, I just want to kind of go crazy and go wild and do something. I just want to go kick some goals. I want to smash some windows. I want to go preach. I want to, they're just like itching to go somewhere. But they haven't committed themselves to self-discipline, to a life of prayer and fasting and devotion. It's both. But by the same token, I don't want Erano or any other church to be the kind of church that is only calling people to the cell and is not celebrating the craziness of getting into a coracle and pushing oneself out into the North Sea. We need both of these experiences. And I don't just mean you need to send people out. Erina has to be in the coracle. What frightens you? What unsettles you? What makes you feel discomfort? They're not bad things. They might be the very things to which God is calling you. Does this make sense? Be godly, be righteous, be holy, but also be crazy. And I look around this room, there's enough white hair in this room, or no hair, as the case may be. (laughs) There's enough wisdom and godliness and age in this room. I think to myself, who else would be freed from all the strictures of polite behavior and fine upstanding churchiness if not those who've got nothing to lose those whose reputations aren't at stake those who are going to spur us as Erin a Baptist church onto the rhythm of the cell and the coracle does this make sense I'm going to uh, read then to you a, uh, a poem by way of closing. It's a, a poem which I think really sums up the rhythm of the cell and the coracle. And it's, in a sense, it's a kind of a form of a prayer also. It's written by um, a friend of mine, an English poet called uh, Adrian Plass. I don't know if you've ever come across any of Adrian's work in the past, but this is a poem that he wrote called Amen. And it goes like this. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, fill me in. Tell me what I'll suffer in this world of shame and sin. He said, well, your body may be killed and left to rot and stink. Do you still want to follow me? And I said, amen, I think. I think amen. Amen, I think. I think I say amen. Look, I'm not completely sure. Could we just run through that again? You say my body could be killed and left to rot and stink? Oh, yeah, that sounds terrific, Lord. I say amen, I think. But, Lord, look, there must be other ways to follow you, I said. I really would prefer to end up dying in my bed. Well, yes, he said, you could just put up with sneers and scorn and spit. 
Do you still want to follow me? I said, amen, a bit. A bit, amen. Amen, a bit. A bit, I say, amen. Look, I'm not entirely sure. Could we just run through that again? You said I could put up with sneers and scorn and spit. Well, yeah, I've made up my mind. I say, amen, a bit. And I sat back and I, I thought a while and then I tried a different ploy. Now, Lord, I said, the good book says Christians live in joy. That's true, he said. You're going to need the joy. (laughs) To bear the pain and sorrow. Do you still want to follow me? And I said, amen, tomorrow. (laughs) Tomorrow, Lord, I'll say it then. That's when I'll say amen. Look, you say, I've just got to get it clear. Could we just run through that again? You say I will need the joy to bear the pain and sorrow. Well, yeah, I think I've got it straight. I'll say amen tomorrow. He said, look, I'm not asking you to spend an hour with me, a quick salvation sandwich and a cup of sanctity. The cost is you. Not half of you, but every single bit. Now tell me, will you follow me? I said, amen. No. I quit. I'm awfully sorry, Lord. I'd like to follow you, but I don't think religion is a manly thing to do. He said, well, you forget religion then, and you think about my son, and you tell me if you're man enough to do what he has done. Are you man enough to see the need? Are you man enough to go? Are you man enough to care for those that no one wants to know? Are you man enough to say the things that people hate to hear and battle through Gethsemane in loneliness and fear? And listen, are you man enough to stand it at the end, the moment of betrayal by the kisses of your friend? Are you man enough to hold your tongue? Are you man enough to cry? And when the nails break your body, are you man enough to die? Man enough to take the pain? And wear it like a crown, man enough to love this world and turn it upside down. Are you man enough to follow me? I ask you once again. I said, Oh Lord, I'm so frightened. But I also said, Amen. 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 Amen, amen. I said, Lord, I'm so frightened. But I also said, Amen. Uh, and respond to what Mike has just shared with us far by singing God is Able. Um, I think we all recognise uh, that to live in both the cell and the coracle, we can only do that in the Lord's strength and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's stand and sing this song uh, as we close our service.
God is able, He will never fail. He is Almighty God, greater than all we seek, greater than all we ask. He has done great things, lifted up. He defeated the grave, raised to life, our God is able, in His name we overcome, for the love our God is so powerful and you are so sovereign uh, that the task that's set before us is impossible without you, um, but you help us overcome and you go before us. Lord, help us to just get out of our comfort zones when we know we should. By your Spirit, please prompt us to uh, take the risk and take the adventure that, um, and have the imagination that you have um, and I just really pray, Lord, that we won't hang up our hats and we won't retire our work for you, Lord, that you would help us to be um, uh, on fire for you and, and like those Celtic missionaries, help us to, to take risks and, and go on adventures and love extravagantly and 
do whatever it takes uh, so that people know your love, um, whatever that means, Lord. And if there's something uh, that you want to prompt us now, I pray that you'd bring that to our minds and that we would act on that, that today's service won't just be, uh, won't finish here, that there might be something that um, you may lead us in and help us to be obedient to that and help us to devote ourselves to you um, out of love, uh, help us to be disciplined and search your scriptures and hunger for you and pray. Um, and, and I just really pray, Lord, that you may change us and transform us and use us as jars of clay for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Quan, Paul, Rachel, Liam and Sam and Esther, who are out with the kids, uh, and a big thank you, Mike. We really appreciate you being here among us this morning. Let's just thank them so much. And Jethro, of course, how could I forget? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into, this, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you for worshipping with us. May you go and discipline yourselves in the coracle of holiness, in the, the cell of holiness, and enjoy the adventure of mission that God calls us to in the coracle. Thank you for worshipping with us this morning. God bless.